We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. Hello, and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm producer Faye Adabita. On the episode coming up today, we have Adam Nicholson, the writer and author whose past books have explored immersive and at times weighty topics, such as our understanding of the Bible and the work of great poets such as Coleridge and Wordsworth. He returns with a new book, how to be. It looks at the early Greek philosophers, asking how the geography of the lands that they came from helped shape not only their own minds, but subsequently some of the most enduring ideas to spread throughout humanity over thousands of years, right up to the present day. Joining Adam in conversation is the writer, academic and broadcaster, Shahida Bari. Let's hear from them both now. Adam, as you may know, is the author of numerous books on history, landscape and nature, including Sissinghurst, an Unfinished History, which won the 2009 Royal Society of Literature on Dace Prize, Serum, uh, The Mighty Dead, Why Homer Matters, and Life Between the Tides in Search of Rock Pools and Other Adventures Along the Shore. His latest book, How to Be, Life Lessons from the Early Greeks, is a philosophical travelogue which takes the reader on a journey into the origins of Western thought, placing classical thinkers he examines at the site of their thought, from Homer's Odysseus in Smyrna, and Sappho in Lesbos to Pythagoras in Calabria and Empedocles in Sicily. The book is a journey through the eastern Mediterranean harbour cities, in which, Adam argues, a new kind of philosophical thinking took shape 2,500 years ago. Adam, welcome to Intelligence Squared and congratulations on the book. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. The, the book begins with you diving from a boat um, as you you. You, you you disentangle, heroically disentangle uh, an anchor somewhere in the Aegean while on holiday, I think, with your wife, Sarah. Tell us how the idea of the book emerged. Well, yes, a few years ago, Sarah and I were sailing in the eastern Aegean. And, um, you know, one of the most wonderful places on earth, really, in terms of its natural beauties, its uh, extraordinary climate, its kind of soaked quality. It's historically soaked place. And we were sailing between uh, Samos and Chios, the, the Greek islands, off the west coast of Turkey. And I had with me a copy of the book that her father, John Raven, who was a, a don at Cambridge, had written, had published, oddly enough, in the very year I was born. I never met him, and so I've only ever known him through what he wrote. And this book is really the uh, kind of absolutely standard guide to what 
are called the pre-Socratic philosophers. Those early Greek thinkers who came before Socrates, between about 700 and about 500, 450 BC, the, the absolute uh, birth country of, of Western thinking. And as we were sailing uh, between Samos and Chios, I suddenly realized that we were actually embedded in the world that this book described. You know, 20 miles over to the south was Miletus, where the first thinkers about the nature of the physical world were born. 20 miles a little further north, there was Heraclitus from Ephesus, who the first sort of systems thinker, trying to understand the world, not in terms of its kind of bits and pieces, but of of what connected them. And then just over the horizon to the north, in Lesbos, the island of, of Sappho, the first person really to um, talk about the self or write poetry, lyric poetry that emerged from the vivid self. And so there was this incredible concentration in an area of country, you know, no bigger than, I mean, smaller than an English county, of yeah. everything that anyone has ever thought in Europe since. And, and that's what this book is about, that, that this amazing uh, combination of new thinking with this very, very beautiful series of places. Wonderful. I think we should let you immerse us into these places and into your inquiry. Um, so I think you're going to start with a reading before yes. we, we talk. So I say... Almost in view from the cockpit of our small chartered boat was the whole province in which Greek philosophy had begun. The grey-blue masses of island and mainland hid within them the thinker's city. Thirty or forty miles to the south in Miletus was the birthplace of the first theorists of the physical world. Twenty miles to the east in Ephesus was Her the home of Heraclitus, the first person to consider the interrelatedness of things. Just to the north, in the twin cities of Notion and Colophon, was the country of Xenophanes, the first philosopher of civility. And just over the horizon was Lesbos, the island of Sappho and Alcaeus, the greatest early lyric poets. To the south, in Samos, where we'd come from that morning, the birthplace of Pythagoras the man who first imagined an everlasting soul. Could one ever think of a more wonderful place in which to sail for a day? I don't think you could. I don't think it's you great. Could. I mean, it's terrible, I should say it's great. But I, can, <laughs> I get, again, a sensation of amazement, really. Yeah. Well, that, that, you, you also impart that, I think, in the book, your sense of wonder of walking in the footsteps of these thinkers and uncovering their trail, as it were. We're going to get into the detail of the book in a moment, but the, there is a, a central premise, which is a broader idea about the way in which, I think you put it, philosophy has a geography. And I wondered whether you might expand on that, what, what the implications of that geography are. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, exact, that's the idea I had there and then that could it be sheer coincidence that these new thinkers, all these new ways of thinking, 
emerged in harbour cities. Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't the first, obviously, the first cities that had ever been made in the world. You know, cities had been around in Egypt, in, in Mesopotamia, in the Indus Valley for thousands of years even. And so, <clears throat> sorry, so why was it that in these particular cities did this particular way of thinking emerge? And it's a kind, it has a kind of deep historical structure, this, that in Mesopotamia and Egypt, these huge hydraulic civilizations absolutely dominated by very powerful capitals with very powerful kings and very powerful um, theologies in which kind of great gods dominated uh, the universe. All thinkers were really servants of palace or temple, were kind of servants of power. And those great Bronze Age civilizations all disintegrated, you know, at the sort of 1300, 1100 BC, and the Eastern Mediterranean really collapsed for two, three hundred years. And in that collapse, bubbled up something new. And the new thing was <clears throat> these very independent um, Greek, mercantile, oligarchic non-monarchical, in many ways, non-believing cities. You know, there is a, a very distinct quality to this new Greek thought, which says, do not tell me how to be. <laughs> I will find out how to be. I, just as the city from which I come, is a trading, connecting city without, you know, an absolute loathing of tyranny. Um never democratic and always only uh, oligarchic places, but uh, always resisting the idea that there is a single rigid frame of understanding which you have to fit into. And so somehow mercantile, uh, entrepreneurial inventiveness floods into the way in which people started to think of their own lives, their own cities, their own conceptions of the cosmos, self, city, and cosmos are the three dimensions in which Greek thought kind of begins. And so in that way, it's a kind of classic Marxist idea, really, that uh, you think as the world around you allows you to think. You are the product of your world. And I, and I think that's, in a way, what this book is about. That's very interesting, isn't it, to think of it as a kind of early historical materialism pre-Marx, that these are thinkers shaped by the stuff around them. Yes, and I think we can see that, but I don't, that isn't to say that they thought that. No, of course. I mean, I think we, we can see that. No, no their, their ideas of these enormously powerful cosmic forces in play uh, yeah. to which we are subject. And it, it is not an essentially economic um, conception of humanity as they yes. saw it, but it is, I think, as we can see it. Yes. Well, one of the very important aspects of this world is the idea of a cosmos. And, and I think you strikingly note that the philosophy of the early Greeks, as you understand it, is one that connects science and mysticism. And I wondered whether you could give me an example of that and, and why that's important, why that particular conjunction is important. Yes, I mean, we, you know, 
I mean, I find the whole idea of philosophy slightly daunting. <laughs> and uh, do, I think. this great sort of monumental inheritance that we have of the great, the great thinkers. And these people who I think in some ways can be seen to have thought before philosophy was philosophy, that they are as much, and they, they, they share qualities with the great Hebrew prophets, and they share qualities with the great Indian thinkers, their contemporaries, or with uh, Zarathustra in, in Persia. Well, an example is the famous statement of, of Heraclitus that you can't step into the same river twice. Okay, in Greek he says, Potomoisi toisin af toisin embanusin hetera ke hetere date pire. So you can see already that actually this is a poetic conception of what thought might be. Potomoisi toisin af toisin embanusin. It's amazing kind of rippling yeah. of the river through the thing. And it means into the same rivers those stepping in different things and different waters flow and so it has a kind of uh, i'm tempted to say holy conception around it not a who yeah. but it's a sort of sacred statement uh, about uh, the nature of being and um others do you know there's a there's a wonderful thinker from Miletus called uh, Anaximenes, whose conception of the universe was that it was essentially made of air, and that each of our lives, <coughs> sorry, I have a frog in my throat, each of our lives are only a kind of momentary sharing of that world breath, that <laughs> as anything, not only us, but anything, comes into existence. It just absorbs for a moment a, a fragment of the great cosmic breath. And while it is we, it is alive, it breathes that. And as it dies, it simply exhales it again. And so, which is very like a kind of Buddhist conception, actually, of the relationship with the self to, 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 to the universe. And so this is not... Um, you know, they're not Hegel, these people. <laughs> they're more like great poets, I think. Yeah. I, I'm persuaded of that, listening to your your, your recitation of Heraclitus there. It's we, wonderful, we isn't it? I love that liquidity. I mean, they're very, they're very entranced by liquidity and the fluency of things, which also, in my mind, cannot be distinct from the fact that their, the lives of these cities are completely afloat on the uh, right. eastern Mediterranean. You know, they have no great, you know, if you take Mesopotamia or, or the Nile Valley, this enormous substantial material richness of, of fertility just coming at them from the valley. But these Greek cities have no real hinterland. They have no Ooh. essential good Except yeah. the goods that they can exchange. I, well, exactly, and, and part of the trail you pursue is is picking up the debris, as it were. Um, you you are you're taking us behind the the scenes of these harbour mines and their their worlds, their cultures and societies. And part of the pleasure of the book is following you on that evidence trail as you 
you pick through the ruins and the broken plates and the coins. There is, in fact, a particular bowl, a very special shard of a bowl that you pick up. Tell us about it. Yes, well, they were, you know, the Greeks were exploring uh, all over the Mediterranean and up into northern Aegean, into the Black Sea and the Levant and the coast of North Africa. And that, uh, you know, navigation is absolutely central to this. The idea that you are a vivid self in this cosmically uh, exposed world. And so, you, you navigate and you navigate by the stars in ways that are certainly borrowed from, adapted from Babylonian uh, methods. I mean, they're great absorbers of foreign uh, cultures and foreign understanding, Egy Egyptian and, and Mesopotamian and so on. And so um, the, the, the stars uh, are a kind of uh, map to the universe <laughs> yeah, for them. And in, in Homer, in, in the Odyssey, Odysseus navigates by the stars. And uh, he when he's leaving uh, Calypso's island, who's imprisoned him and enforced him to sleep with her night after night for seven years, and he can't stand it any longer, he sails <laughs> across the uh, uh, Mediterranean using the stars and, and Homer names the stars and one of the stars, one of the constellations he he names is Bootes, which means the herdsman. And he, he who stands like a great herdsman in, in the in the sky with it with his staff. And I went to the island of Ischia in the Bay of Naples, where there was a famous very early Greek uh, colony, Pithikusa, as it's called, and through sort of rootling about there, got to see the uh, excavations done by a kind of maverick archaeologist priest who's died now in in, uh, in Ischia, and there, in the excavations, which were all shut up and collapsing, and and you know, in need of hundreds of thousands of euros to repair them. There, in a dusty little uh, cupboard, the lady who was showing me around got out a tiny green shard about this. It just fitted in the palm of my hand. And she said, have a look at this. And the shard came from the inside of the rim of a big wine-mixing bowl, a crater. And so... Uh, if you if you had the bowl the right way up, it would be kind of just here. Uh, but if you held the bowl above you, it would kind of it would be a map of the heavens. And the shard mm -hmm. that she showed me had on it the constellation of Bootes with a wow. B saying Bootes, and it was it was. I, I, it's well. It's extraordinary. Remember, it was yeah. I was holding Odysseus's stars in my hand, um, yeah. in a way absolutely magical. And, and she said, "Very well, very good, very good." And she put, <laughs> should put it back in the box. And I'm sure no one else has seen Aww. it since. Well, there, there is a very prosaic picture in the book of your palm holding this magical object. Uh, there's also um, I don't know if I can show this to the camera. There's a you you, you talk in detail about the various coins and plates that you um, are, are examining 
And all of this is, is creating a collage, a picture of the societies against which this, this, this thought is emerging. And there is a 5th century BC plate made in Attica. I don't know if the camera can see. Cause can, can you talk to us about that? This was found, made in Attica and found in Taranto in southern, southern Italy. Yeah, in southern oh. Italy. It's in the museum, wonderful museum. Oh, yeah. there. I mean, really, partly this book is really a tour of the, the great museums of the <laughs> Mediterranean. And this extraordinary oh, plate has on it this beautiful boy. It's an African boy. And on the plate, it's, it is written, Kalos, Kalos. Meaning beautiful. beautiful, beautiful. I couldn't understand what what this this meant, I, and and I talked to someone about it, and they said, well, uh, slaves there, as in many places, were re given names. No, they didn't. Not they were given their slave names, and this boy, probably a kind of lover, a, sl a sex uh, slave. Uh, was probably called Beautiful as his name, given Beautiful as his mm -hmm. name. And so here is a, uh, a depiction of a, of a slave boy in which the kind of joke or, or maybe the affectionate statement or whatever says Beautiful with a small b, Beautiful with a, with a big b, you know, that's the capital B, that, that is, Kalos is indeed Kalos. And it's... Uh, it's both wonderful, let's play, and horrifying. This is a definitely a slave society. The Greeks are huge slave traders. They're all their colonies around the shores of the Black Sea in Ukraine and Crimea and northern Turkey were all slave ports. And uh, the sources of their riches were in slave trading, largely to the great cultures of the Levant and uh, Egypt and, and Persia, into the Persian Empire. And so there is something very important and disturbing about all this. You know, it's very easy to portray this early Greek world as a kind of beautiful, sunlit, apple blossom, elegant, lovely world. But its foundation is this. And the... The troubling aspect of it is that just as so all these extraordinary things, you know, stone, t wonderful temples, um, sculpture, the coinage, law codes, um, athletics, Olympic Games, all these things are uh, epic and lyric poetry are all erupting together. And the thing that they erupt together with is chattel slavery. <laughs> and there's a story about Thales, Thales, one of the philosophers from Miletus, a story told by um, Socrates that, that Thales is walking around the streets of Miletus late at night. He's a distinguished man, a writer of law codes, uh, a book about navigation and so on, travelled... Egypt and Babylon and, and a kind of distinguished man. And he's at night looking at the stars. And as he's walking around in the streets at night looking at the stars, he takes a step back. And as he steps back, he falls into a well, bum first, and gets stuck there. And as he falls in, next to the well is a person that... Um, Socrates describes as 
a beautiful, witty Thracian girl. And Thracian girl is code, or I mean, pretty transparent code for a slave girl from Thrace, north of the Aegean. And when Thales falls in, uh, the Thracian girl just laughs and laughs and laughs and says, what is the point of looking at the heavens when you can't even see what's there at your feet? Mm. And it's a kind of key question about philosophy, really, you know, that is absent-minded, high-minded, idealistic thinking about the higher eternal things really more significant than doing the laundry, drawing water from the well? It, or is it even that, that philosophy allows the idea that there are kind of higher things that the high-minded can think about and uh, a form of sort of being that is entirely dependent on a servile class servicing yes. your needs, you know. And so it's a, it's a very, very importantly erosive idea that, you know, Walter Benjamin fam <laughs> famously said that there is no, uh, I think, there is no act of, or document of civilization which is not yes. also an act of barbarity, you know, and that, that there is something intensely cruel in that, <laughs> oh, bless you, in the, in the hierarchy that, uh, that philosophy kind of elevates, you know. Yes, yes. And you, and you attend, you, you are conscientious in the book in trying to attend to those that context, um, as well as... It's difficult the, the... because I, I kind of love this world so much. Of course, yeah. Uh, but yeah. kind of, and know that I must acknowledge its failings. And yeah. even yeah. this kind of, almost the kind of seed, of the kind of seed failing that this is, you know. Um, and so I don't know how to resolve this, really. Does it, does it, does this context devalue all the wonders that uh, emerge from it. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, 
financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. My, my sense from reading the book was that it it does not, but that that world is enriched by understanding understanding the the world from which this thought has come um and each of your each of your chapters has a has a question and so it it strikes me that um there are the questions are always more interesting than the answers in some ways so one the, the one of the questions well let me give an example of some of the questions must i think my way through the world is politeness a virtue what is existence made of? Let's focus on that last one, Adam, because it seems very easy, that question. What is existence made of? I mean, where, 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 do, you go to, <laughs> where do you go to find the answer to well, that question? Well, the great thinkers from Miletus, Thales and, and uh, Anaximander and Anaximenes, and in fact also Heraclitus from Ephesus, all think that the world is made of a kind of fluid, that when you boil things down, that Thales thinks it's water, uh, Anaximander thinks it's what he calls the aperon, the, the, the in, indefinable, the kind of the, the unknowable uh, uh, other stuff from which the material world emerges and into which it will finally disappear. Uh, Anaximenes thinks it's breath, this kind of world, breath or air. And Heraclitus thinks it's fire, that as the essential material of things is their burning. <laughs> it's the most extraordinarily powerful, sort of Blakian, sort of Gothic idea that the world is actually a fire and that every uh, material thing, every kind of sense of, of the substantial that we might have is in fact only a kind of momentary phase in, in the fire. Uh, and this, I mean, I think this is, this is you know, terrifying, but also rather wonderful, liberating idea, this, this fluidity of things that any form of life that you know is only the form that the wave is currently taking. Uh, and so that it it means you know there is no it's it's sort of a totally absorbent idea of what existence is made of that you do not end up defending particular facts particular nations particular status quos you allow the liquid to run because truth is in the liquid running if that. Mm. I feel I sound like a guru when I say those things, but <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, I think it's, it's a magically um, pre-Socratic idea, you know, because because with Plato and Socrates, things become much more definitive. 
that things become, you know, that Plato imposes a sort of a fascistic idea, actually, of what the good society should be, or and a highly intolerant idea, and also cultivates the idea of the good as a sort of the good man as an eternal, everlasting sort of soul, you know, which none of none of these early thinkers are are, are really considering that we, we will last forever, and you have to kind of cultivate your own goodness. It's this. Um, they're dealers, they're merchants yeah. in the ideal, these people. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, many 20th century philosophers have thought that the great disaster from Western civilization is the abandonment of, of these ideals, these pre-Socratic ideals, in favor of a, of a much sort of more, uh, yeah, sort of mm. intolerant platonic uh, view which has shaped christianity and western civilization you know that's it's i think in some ways we live in a post-socratic world right so this kind of socratic phase lasted till till nietzsche or something or to the romantics maybe or to wordsworth you know and so uh but it's over and we now need to be and like to be and should I think be in more like in this pre-Socratic world yeah. of liquidity and fluidity and absorbance. Well, well, that, that, I, it's, in, it's it's intriguing hearing you talk about liquidity and fluidity because it strikes me that one of the questions you ask, uh, how to be me, is a very modern one, uh, and the person to whom you turn to to try to answer that. Is Sappho. So, so what is her place as a thinker in in this book and in this journey? Well, the before Sappho and the other other poets, other lyric poets, you know, lyric poet meaning meaning poetry that is spoken from the point of view of a person, emerge for the first time in about six hundred, and the previous world had been dominated by epic poetry, not only among the Greeks, among other cultures. And epic poetry is extremely public. Uh, the voice of the poem does not come from a single person. It comes almost from the culture itself. And with Sappho, that is turned on its head. And she uses, you know, Homer is the great kind of presence in the background here, and she uses all the Homeric uh, language and turns of phrase even. I mean, in, in she is obviously absolutely, um, you know, soaked in, in Homeric knowledge, but uses the, that language not to describe a world from the outside, but from within, from within the self. And the self for her and Archaeus and Archilochus and others, in there are many of them, in fact, um, the self becomes the kind of uh, lens through which reality is understood. And with the self being the kind of... Uh, the way or the sort of access to the world in, in the poetry... It becomes uh, uh, extraordinarily highly emotive, uh, and so Sappho famously, like in her her fragment thirty one, it's called the her 
poetry only survives in fragments, fragments of papyrus discovered here and there. She is sitting in uh, somewhere in Lesbos, in, in the harbour side in Mytilene, and she sees on the other side of the room a man uh, talking to a woman. And as she's looking at them uh, across the room, she sees this beautiful girl laughing at something the man has said, laughing in a most kind of incredibly attractive, uh, seductive, sexy way. And um, uh, Sappho then starts to kind of feel an intensity of desire across the room. It, it's the most extraordinary, you know, folding up of time experience that she says that she feels uh, what she calls a thin fire running up under her skin, you know, which is the most... I mean, this is uh, ancient history for me now, but I, I can remember a feeling, thin fire, <laughs> just coursing up through you when you, you suddenly feel like whatever it is that is drawing you yeah. to that person on the other side of the room. And there's something absolutely phenomenal about yeah. something 2,600 years old being able to convey, convey that. Yes. But using the extraordinary thing is that she's using all the language of, of of battle and grief and epic scale that Homer used in, in the Iliad. You know, there's a faith Wordsworth in the prelude says there is a grandeur in the beatings of the heart. Yes. And that idea that actually the beatings of the heart are as are as large and great as anything to do with armies or navies and chariots is, as you say, you know, a radiantly modern idea, another mm. invention of the world in which we live. Mm. How it connects with the idea of fluidity is interesting and difficult because obviously that is a kind of great elevation of the kind of substantial ego in a way. But... I think the point, you know, one of the points about Sappho is that that self is itself made of completely malleable substance. You know, she is not a kind of rigidly present sort of warrior figure. She is absolutely subject to all the currents cool. and winds that are blowing, you know, like that. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes, she's um, absolutely. Do you read Sappho? I mean, it's the most yeah. revelatory thing. Well, it's so tantalising, Sappho, isn't it? Uh, yeah. So we uh, we romanticise the fragmentary nature of it, don't we? You know, yeah. we kind of love that. There's nothing here. You know, some fragments just say violets, or <laughs> don't they? Or or rose scented or something, and so and that's yes. all you get. But. Uh, my hope is, it's you know, a, they've discovered that there's the way of reading the, the great library, great burnt library in Pompeii. That you know that in Pompeii, when the eruption happened, it was uh -huh. an extraordinary library which was charred, and all these rolled up papyruses have ended up like kind of like croissants you've left too long in the oh, oven, wow. you know. Okay. And so, whenever anyone has tried to unfold them, they've they broken apart. But now. Someone's invented a thing that can read through 
the layers oh and and disentangle yeah. the layers yeah. so yeah. and who knows what's in there but you know the grand hope is that somewhere in there are complete mm -hmm. sappho poems waiting to spring on the world you know two and a half thousand years later what a marvelous idea that there's more to there's more to more to come potentially um pythagoras i mean i'm, re I'm remembering a moment ago you were you, you were you were being very self-deprecating and um, about sounding like a guru at the risk of sounding like a guru. You said, um, but Pythagoras you describe as a guru, a religious guru and social reformer, a proto-Christ-like figure. Nothing to do with the theorem. You dispel that myth immediately. He's fascinating in the book. Tell us a bit more about he him. He is, isn't he? He's he's sort of the leader of the whole second phase. That he's born you know, along where those others came from in the Eastern Aegean and went and set up shop in southern Italy in, in, in a town called Croton, Crotoni now, uh, on the Gulf of Toronto there, in, in the kind of, you know, on the bottom of the boot of Italy. And he really transforms this, turns this whole phenomenon on its head that he hates Heraclitus, for example, all of that, and all of that fluidity thing goes. And he becomes this, yeah, cult leader, and he sets up a cult which has really powerful political dimensions to it, that he, 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 he and his gang end up ruling the city of Croton and are much hated others as a sort of uh, elite. And he has a house with a cellar, into which he disappears uh, from time to time and emerges you know, many days later and being able to give to his followers news from the, from the other world in, in a way that seems like, I think he's a complete charlatan, Pythagoras, uh, and uh, a kind of you know, a classic fake guru. But charisma. It's Absolutely radiating charisma. charisma. And people see him in, you know, in various places. He can... When he talks to rivers, the rivers talk back, and uh, he appears at the Olympic Games, and his his toe, toe, his dress falls aside, and it turns out he has one entirely golden thigh. <laughs> and so, uh, but the intriguing thing about him is that he, you know, unlike these earlier thinkers, he does come to think that we all have everlasting souls, souls that will survive after death. And even that um, it is possible to communicate with the world uh, uh, after death. And his followers, or many of his followers, were buried with these uh, golden letters on their chests. Uh, that is sort of like a piece of golden foil on which instructions were written to the great uh, commanding figures of the underworld. And they would say, on the golden letter, it says, uh, I am a son of earth and, or a daughter of, of the sky, and uh, I'm here. Allow me to um, uh, enter the afterlife and to uh, really enter kind of Elysi Elysian fields. Mm. Uh, and I can't help but think that it's no coincidence that the great egotist in this story, which is what he is, unlike those others who are often a great denier of ego, 
the great egotist comes to think that he will himself uh, uh, die and and uh, in fact probably come back he could remember he could remember many of his previous own existences you know that he was a warrior at troy earlier he was he was said to have been a prostitute for a while in in the streets of uh, Paris and, and so on and so i can't help but think that this invention of the soul is itself a kind of reflection of um his own self-importance and the, the, all those earlier thinkers who had denied the importance of the self, really, uh, were better for it. <laughs> fake, a fake. Again, it strikes me again as a very mod modern phenomena: the the charismatic forger who seduces um, and inveigles. Um, but it, it seems to me very important that your book ends with the question of love, not with Pythagoras, but somewhere else and with a different thinker. That seems to be very a um, meditated decision on your part. And I, I, perhaps this is my last question to you. What, what do the pre-Socratic Greeks have to teach us about love? Well, the great apostle of love was a very alluring figure called Empedocles. One of the troubles with this subject is that everyone's name sounds some pretty much like everyone else's. But the far last figure in my book, anyway, is called Empedocles. And he was a great leader of men in a city called Acragas in, in Sicily, great, powerful city. And uh, with his reputation as a sort of extraordinarily generous, hundreds and hundreds of God children. He would kind of just walk through the streets in his lovely flowing purple robes as a kind of, you know, a great man of the people, a great denier mm. of tyranny, a kind of proto-democrat and so on. A really one of the great forgotten heroes of history, I think. And Empedocles' kind of long poem, which is how his... Uh, philosophy has survived, uh, talks about two incredibly powerful things. The first is that the world is made of four elements. This was what was taken up by Aristotle and all through uh, medieval thought until kind of modern scientific revolution, that the four elements of the world are earth, air, fire, and water, and that those are the kind of essential constituents of stuff. And but the motivating forces of uh, uh, of in the shaping of the world in the in the kind of combining and discombining of those those four elements are love and strife. That uh, love is obviously the kind of agglutinating force in the world, the things that brings uh, elements together, and strife is the opposite, is the thing that pushes everything apart. And Empedocles' vision of the world is that love and strife are in everlasting, kind of almost rotating combinations with each other. And that phases of the world, even phases of one's own life, phases of individual days even, are dominated either by love or strife. And they roll over and round each other uh, bringing together aspects of the world and pulling pulling it apart, bringing together and pulling apart in a sort of almost like the kind of breathing of the world soul like that. 
and I think this is this is this is a, a much richer conception than those very first thinkers thinking about breath or air or water or fire or whatever. That actually you can see that in the nature of existence, that things things disintegrate and reintegrate uh, on almost any time scale you like to choose. They're in constant dialogue with each other, love and strife, love and strife. And obviously, Empedocles, a hero of mine, Empedocles, says in the end that you know, the great, beautiful, life-enhancing force in the world is love. Adam, I think we're going to close with a reading from the book. Yes, well, I find the thing I would like to just read, going back almost to the beginning now, to talk about uh, Anaximenes' idea about the world's breath. So he said that the air is the principle and frame of all that is. For all things come to be from it, and into it they are again dissolved. This is quoting an early account of him. Just as our soul, being air, holds us and controls us, so does pneuma, either wind or breath, that means, and air enclose the whole world. And so, for Anaximenes, we are as the world is. We live in an envelope of breath. The air enters us as we are born and leaves us as we die dissolving back into the constituents of which we were first made. Only for a time does the cosmic breath soul distinguish us from our surroundings. It's as if the universe infuses us for that moment, inhabited by a world spirit that both pre-exists us and lasts long after us. It is Anaximenes' great recognition that we are no more than an emanation of the cosmos, the lightest of substances inspires us for a few years, and for that time we are as present and as transient as a cloud or a breath of wind. Thank you, Adam. It's been such a pleasure talking with you and, and travelling with you in the footsteps of the early Greeks. That's How to Be, Life Lessons from the Early Greeks by Adam Nicholson. Thank you too for joining us and to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for listening to Intelligent Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Wall. If you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligent Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligentsquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligentsquared.com.